Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Alright, good morning and welcome to another working week. Just a shorty this week. Thank you, Your Majesty, and happy birthday to you. I hope you had a wonderful long weekend. We're here with all the news right around Australia between 7 and 9 on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us a little later uh, on the Prawncast. Great to have you company. However you're listening to us, I don't care how you do it so long as you are. Uh, plenty of things to have a look at this morning. I'll go through some of, uh, of course, the winners. Do we call them winners? Well, I guess you're a winner if you're given a Queen's birthday honour, an Order of Australia or whatever. Uh, you know, the usual um, sporting celebrity types got a gong as per usual, but I was very happy as I see, uh, you know, bipartisanship played a part in this too, I think. I was very happy to see... Uh, the Chief Health Officer from New South Wales, Dr Kerry Chant, collect a gong for her outstanding work. Look, uh, uh, did she make mistakes? Probably. Uh, she's human after all, but I think, um, you know, she. you've got to remember, Dr Kerry Chant went through the whole pandemic. She was, uh, of course, you know, caught up with a, a little bit of infighting in the New South Wales government. She was, from time to time, sidelined somewhat, uh, there were some issues, apparently, that she spoke out of place and she was put back in a place, if you like, by not only the former Premier Gladys Berejiklian, but probably more so the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard. And speaking of Gladys, well, of course, Dr Kerry Champ was dealing with the pandemic while the Premier was being turfed out of office and fronting an independent commission against corruption. So, look, um, given all of those circumstances, I think it was an award that was well-deserved. You may tend to agree or disagree, but um, anyway, congratulations to her. Um, The other one that I was really pleased with was um, Ash Barty. Not because she, you know, is a wonderful tennis player, but because she's given back uh, through charities and and spends a lot of time in Indigenous communities and all the rest of it. So well done to everybody uh, who received a Queen's birthday honour yesterday. Dominic Perrottet is looking to at least, um, I don't want to say scrap stamp duty. Uh, Well, I guess he does want to do that. He used to as the former New South Wales Treasurer, but... Uh, whenever you see a you know a sentence that says the premier wants to scrap stamp duty, yeah, he wants to scrap the way it's done. That is paying it up front because it's a barrier for first home buyers getting into the market. I understand that, but um, it doesn't mean the government's not going to get its money for jam. I hate stamp duty. It's you know it's money basically just for signing a document. That's what it's all about. Now stamp. That's it. <laughs> you know it's money for nothing. Well done. Anyway, um, I'll talk about that story again yesterday. The New South Wales Premier, who was travelling in regional New South Wales, brought that up and maybe it'll get some traction. I don't know, what, what would you prefer? I can understand it, though, from an economic point of view. And uh, it, look, if it's easier for those hopping on the market now to pay stamp duty off over time, 
well then why shouldn't it be given um, you know some consideration maybe you agree disagree let me know uh, so we've got that um, oh speaking of the New South Wales state government I love watching them implode uh, there are more issues with fighting MPs uh, David Elliott running to his mates at 2GB to bitch about Matt Keane's great, love it. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll <laughs> go through that story. It's all to do with Catherine Deves. To be honest, it's a distraction. No one cares. It's over and done with. Catherine Deves is, wasn't elected, was never going to be elected because of her bigoted views, in my opinion. And um, I don't know why David's wasting his time. Um, I don't know, is it, does he have a score to settle with Matt Keane or something? Do these two men not like each other? They mustn't. Uh, the idea being, of course, that um, uh, I think uh, there's still a, a few people annoyed with the pre-selection of Catherine Deves to begin with, and that's where it all stems from. So we'll go through that and all the rest of it. Uh, the latest news, as always, from our good friends behind the news desk at Air Air News. We'll uh, get that on the half hour for you. Great tunes as well, so let's get into it. Tuesday morning, this is Marcus Paul in the morning right around Australia. Yeah, great to have you company on this Tuesday morning. Uh, short working week this week. Marcus Paul in the morning, live on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform, and of course on TuneIn as well. Now, I noticed uh, yesterday on the public holiday after the announcements of the Queen's birthday honours that from right across the political spectrum, there was uh, much congratulations. So uh, that's in relation to the awarding of Dr. Kerry Chant being recognised in the Queen's birthday honours. And now not only uh, did the New South Wales government compliment that decision, but also the opposition. Chris Minns and, and others paid tribute to Dr Kerry Chant. Many agree that she was the hero that pulled the state out of the darkest days of the pandemic, the Chief Health Officer. She says being recognised in the Queen's birthday honours is a tribute to not her, but her colleagues. Now, Dr Chant and former New South Wales Health Secretary Elizabeth Coff were honoured for their roles in navigating the state through the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr Chan said being appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia was a tribute to her colleagues for their outstanding efforts in keeping our community safe. She said yesterday the commitment, resilience and innovation demonstrated by everyone involved in the pandemic response, from those in our public health units and laboratories to those on the front line in our hospitals, in the most challenging of circumstances, has been nothing short of remarkable. Their commitment to keeping each other safe has been central to any successful outcomes that we've achieved. That was Dr Kerry Chant. Now, Miss Coff, who now works as a managing director at Telstra Health, and Dr Chant, along with then New South Wales Deputy Secretary Susan Pearce, were the trio that navigated the state's health system through three waves of the pandemic resulting in one of the lowest death rates in the world. Health Minister Brad Hazard said Miss Coff and Dr Chant had been rightly recognised for their committing uh, for committing themselves heart and soul 
but their awards were also for the workforce they represented. Uh, Mr Hazard said yesterday these awards are not just for these incredible leaders, but for the teams that went above and beyond to keep New South Wales citizens safe. Now, Miss Coff has been appointed a member of the Order of Australia, that's an AM, and said she shared her award with the 140,000 healthcare workers who were the backbone of the state during the pandemic. She said yesterday, in accepting this award, I do so as a recognition of the incredible commitment of every person in New South Wales Health in the face of one of the uh, in the face of the 100-year COVID pandemic, which tested and continues to test our community, but particularly our health workers. I'm humbled to accept this award as the former secretary responsible for 140,000 staff of the New South Wales health system. I say to all of them, I have been honoured to work with you. This is for all of us. Now, 10 New South Wales police officers were also awarded Australian police medals in recognition of their dedication and service. New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb said the award recognised the valuable contribution officers made to their community. Ms Webb said yesterday, on behalf of the organisation, I want to join the families and friends of today's recipients to thank them for their dedicated service. That's what Ms Webb had to say yesterday. Well, of course, we had a whole range of people honoured in the Queen's birthday list. Uh, celebrities, including uh, Matt Moran. He's a chef, isn't he? <laughs> I shouldn't say. Well, he is, isn't he? Along with uh, cooking queen Donna Hay. Uh, who else? There was a television presenter, Maeve O'Meara. They were awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia, OAM. Um, let's have a look here. There were scientists involved as well. Why is it that in all of the reporting, you don't see too much on the scientists, but there's plenty on the so-called celebrity chefs? Uh, um, Let's have a look here. Former Nationals leader John Anderson. He was made a companion of the Order of Australia. Okay, well done to him. Who else? Uh, Larry Anthony. Carmen Lawrence and Robert McClellan were all appointed to the Order of Australia. They were former politicians as well. And of course, in the sporting sphere, Shane Warne, or Warney, he was given a posthumous Queen's birthday honour. And according to his family, they say it's in due recognition for all he achieved and did for others. Family of Warne, of course, who died suddenly in March was selfless and more than just a cricketer, they said. Uh, he's been appointed an officer of the Order of Australia for distinguished service to cricket as a player, role model and commentator to the community through charitable initiatives and for his philanthropic contributions. There we go. His dad, Keith, issued a heartfelt tribute on behalf of the family, including Warren's three kids, Brooke, Jackson and Summer. Over the last few difficult months, we have reflected a great deal on Shane personally and his amazing achievements throughout his life. This award acknowledges those achievements and recognises that Shane was much more than an incredible cricketer. Well, I was happy with this recipient, Ash Barty. She was also made an AO. That's for her service as an elite tennis player, as well as her generous contribution to youth development programs. But he said yesterday, I'm honoured 
There are so many Australian people who do wonderful things for our country, and I want to congratulate all of the other award recipients. Well, that's just typical of Ash Barty, isn't it? You know, uh, reflects away from herself and looks towards others. Congratulations to everybody that collected a gong yesterday in the Queen's birthday honour lists. Marcus Paul in the morning. Monday morning, it's June the 14th. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company. Let's have a look at some of the news from over the long weekend. And I see the New South Wales government is starting to invest in emergency management. The SES will get millions to prevent another Lismore catastrophe. The flood-ravaged northern rivers will get a bigger emergency services presence as a part of a new $132.7 million investment in the state emergency service. Uh, This, of course, is all a part of the New South Wales budget, and the boost comes after an inquiry into deadly flooding in March last year found the agency was hampered by staffing and resourcing problems. A new incident control centre will be built and staffed in Lismore as a part of $43 million in funding to create two new SES zones in the state's north and west. Now, it's believed the northern SES zone, which currently covers a massive area from the central coast to the Queensland border, will now be split in half to give better SES coverage in the state's northern rivers. Makes sense. The State Emergency Service will also get almost $60 million to upgrade 18 critical priority unit facilities. The boundaries for the two new zones are yet to be finalised. Almost $30 million will be used to create a new zone headquarters and upgrade existing facilities as well, while a little more than $1 million will be used to develop facilities strategies and create business cases to address recommendations from the review into the 2021 floods. Now, of course, we remember uh, the SES faced mounting criticism during catastrophic flooding earlier this year over inconsistent flood evacuation warnings. The Northern Rivers has just one SES volunteer per 1,500 or 2,000 people, according to Tweed MP Jeff Provost. He spoke to the parliamentary inquiry into the flood response earlier this month. The Upper House inquiry is separate to an inquiry by former Police Commissioner Mick Fuller and scientist, uh, who's also teamed up Mary O'Kane, into what went wrong during the flood's response. The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet said the extra funding will give the SES the resources it needs to respond to natural disasters like the recent devastating floods. He said yesterday... The New South Wales government is committed to investing in communities to strengthen frontline services right across the state. The Deputy Premier, Paul Toole, said the funding would ensure a faster and more targeted response to disasters. The new facilities and additional staff, according to Mr Toole, will boost the state emergency services capability to handle severe weather events particularly in flood-prone areas like the Northern Rivers, and to ensure these communities are better prepared. Uh, The SES Commissioner, Carlene York, said the funding will help State Emergency Service boost its responsiveness. She said, this is Commissioner York, she said, this investment 
in the SES enhances our support of our greatest asset, our volunteers, and enables us to provide the vital assistance New South Wales communities need to protect life and property around the state. All right, well, I think that's money well spent. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back to the program live around Australia here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and, of course, on the Prawncast, the podcast. Great to have your company. Marcus Paul in the morning. Give us a, a follow on Facebook and a subscribe, please, on our YouTube channel. There is little doubt uh, the first month of the new Albanese Labor government has had uh, diplomatic ties on their mind. And there was, a, I think, a, a really positive step forward over the long weekend. Defence Minister Richard Miles has challenged his Chinese counterpart on freedom of navigation in the China Sea and the militarisation of the Pacific in the first ministerial meeting between the two countries in nearly three years. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister spoke with General Wei Feng for an hour on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore on Sunday, saying it was, quote, a critical first step after the lengthy diplomatic thaw. Now, the pair agreed to the talks after sitting on the same table at an official dinner on Friday. Now, Mr Miles said it was an opportunity to have a very frank and full exchange in which I raised a number of issues of concern to Australia. Mr Miles also said the conversations included a, uh, a chat over that Chinese fighter jet flying close to an Australian surveillance plane, releasing chaff, including aluminium fragments that were sucked into the engine of the Australian aircraft. And of course, at that time, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said it was a dangerous incident. Speaking after the talks, Mr Miles said it was really important in these times to have open lines of dialogue. He said Australia wanted a productive relationship with China, but that this could only be maintained without any conditions at all. Now, Mr Miles also said over the weekend, while there is a change of tone, there is absolutely no change in the substance of Australia's national interest. While he, was refu- while he did refuse to detail General Wei's response to his concerns, Mr Mao said freedom of navigation was crucial to prosperity and stability in the region and that Australia wanted to ensure the countries of the Pacific are not in a position of increased militarisation. Look, I'd really love to know exactly what went on in relation to the discussion around Taiwan. Of course, we do know... That will be a major sticking point going forward, not only for Australia and our immediate neighbours here in the Pacific, but of course for the United States. And China were talking tough over the weekend, saying that they would meet any resistance to their claims for Taiwan with military action. And that's of great concern. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back to the program. Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, uh, you don't need me to tell you it's been wet 
so far in 2022. And as a result of that, I read over the long weekend that many Sydney residents have been fighting a sudden outbreak of toxic mould in their homes after the summer of record rains. And disputes are starting to emerge between tenants and landlords over who should foot the bill. Well, with the reports of mushrooms growing on walls and mould spores thriving in the unusually high indoor humidity, rental complaints, we're told, have surged. New South Wales Fair Trading data showed more than half the 359 tenancy complaints and a quarter of the 1,992 written inquiries received in the first three months of the year related to maintenance and repairs, and the majority were due to water and mould problems. Tenants also reported properties were listed for rents without being first cleaned. That's despite landlords having a responsibility to provide a safe environment for tenants. There we go. It is the responsibility of landlords to provide a safe environment for tenants. Now, of course, you can do whatever you can to try and prevent mould, but it is up to the homeowner, the landlord, to ensure that people who are paying off their mortgage are doing so in a safe environment. Matt Reardon, who's from Moldbuster, well, he says he's been receiving hundreds of calls a week from residents affected by mould. He said many of these were from renters who had been told by property managers that the problem was their fault. Mr Reardon told News Corp over the weekend, rentals are horrendous. I've had people ringing me in tears. People ring me saying, I'm sick the kids are sick, the agents tell me it's all my fault. Well, is it? The unseasonable level of damp and cold that's also impacting this winter has meant Sydney's mould problem will continue well into spring, with double brick properties built low to the ground, the most vulnerable. Now, Cronulla renter Rebecca Bath she was horrified to find a mushroom growing from a crack in her ceiling after more than 10 calls for maintenance on a leaking roof went without action over 14 months. She was so pissed she lodged a complaint with the New South Wales Fair Trading before the agent arranged for the repair. In the northern beaches, Anna Sistus came across mouldy properties when attending open inspections and when she asked if the mould would be cleaned, she was told, I don't know, I could ask. <laughs> really? Now, Danielle Bunton is from Different Property Management and she said mould could be the responsibility of either the landlord or tenant, depending on whether the problem was a structural or dent or a uh, either a structural or, or what's the best way of putting it? A ventilation issue, I guess. If it's a building or structural issue, it would most likely be the landlord's responsibility to treat and rectify the mould issue. However, it could be the tenant's responsibility, for example, they weren't opening windows during showering. Yeah, well, I don't know. Don't most places have ventilation fans in bathrooms? I suppose some don't. All right, well, there is a mould problem. I'd love to hear about yours. If you have one, you can uh, let us know on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning.
All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on the 14th day of June. So we're halfway through the first month of winter. And of course, it's cold. (laughs) And while most of us are preparing to be hit with skyrocketing gas prices, if you, you know, warm up your properties with gas or if you cook with gas, a shocking report over the weekend has revealed that most of the profits will be going to foreign owners. That's right. The big gas prices and the gas hike, the money that we're paying doesn't stay here in the country. And Australia Institute's analysis of gas companies on the Australian Stock Exchange found 95.7% are foreign owned. With 80% of Australia's gas exported, that's right, 80% sent overseas, households and businesses are experiencing price shock with massive rises in energy prices across the country. The Australian energy market operator, as you know, has been forced to step in and cap gas prices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane to $40 per per gigajoule. But it is still five times higher than last year. However, the frustrations won't stop there with the bombshell revelation in the Australia Institute's report that most of the jacked up prices will be flowing overseas. Fellow at the Australia Institute, David Richardson, he's a research fellow there, he said, our research reveals the companies making super profits from shock gas prices are 95.7% foreign owned. Wow, really? What do you make of that? Let me know, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, something else that um, I wanted to talk about, and there was a story. Uh, I'm, I'm glad for the likes of my friend Emma Hurst from the Animal Justice Party that more of these stories are starting to appear in the mainstream media. And over the weekend, journalist Janet Fife Yeomans, to her credit, wrote a story about this puppy farms. <laughs> The owners of the state's largest known puppy farm can still operate despite being convicted of animal cruelty after they left a boxer dog named Strawberry to die as she struggled to give birth. Now the RSPCA has warned, and I've spoken to them previously and I've spoken to the Animal Justice Party about this, there could be up to 900 of these so-called puppy factories in New South Wales. 900! Michael Flanagan and his daughter Casey Lee are still allowed to have 80 bitches and 25 stud dogs despite being fined and ordered to pay a vet bill of $150,000 to the RSPCA after it raided their isolated Copeton kennels. Inspectors with the RSPCA's Puppy Factory Task Force found 441 dogs, including 250 puppies, inside concrete kennel blocks with no bedding and constantly wet floors. Every dog had wet feet and underbellies, with some covered in liquid faecal matter. Oh, and this is evidence that was presented to the local court in Inverell. Magistrate Holly Kemp said Strawberry, well, that's the the boxer dog I was talking about, Strawberry was vulnerable, utterly helpless and dependent on humans. She suffered hours of suffering leading up to her death. With the New South Wales parliamentary inquiry underway, 
Animal Justice Party MP Emma Hurst has put a bill to follow the lead of Victoria and Western Australia that will outlaw puppy farming and automatically ban breeders convicted of animal cruelty. (laughs) I mean, really? This is just common sense, isn't it? Already there is evidence that cruel puppy farmers are moving into New South Wales after their businesses were shut down and banned from trading in other states. Michael Flanagan, whose kennels are called Stockhaven at Gum Flat, well, he was fined a total of $16,700 and his daughter, who lives in Wagga, fined $4,200 at Inverell Local Court. Together, these two were convicted of 18 offences. Now, the RSPCA did not apply in court for an order to shut down the breeders. Well, perhaps they should have. Anyway, we await further news on that uh, legislation. I think that's much needed from the Animal Justice Party's Emma Hurst on banning and outlawing puppy farming here in the state of New South Wales. It's well long overdue. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company on this Tuesday. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's the 14th day of June. Now, I haven't done this for a while, but I couldn't help myself. I had some spare time over the long weekend, so I I read some of the letters to the editors of the big newspapers. There's still a lot of uh, upset conservatives out there and those on the right who think that, I don't know, it's a chicken little scenario and the sky's about to fall because we have a new government here in the joint. Have a listen to this. Bill, his name is, Bill Domain from Mittagong. Bill. Bill says, Tighten your seatbelts as Albo's crew pilot the economy. Great. A cabal with a background of anti-business, anti-establishment, and with little history of private enterprise work, has been given control of our federal government with the assistance of the anti-everything greens and teals. Consultancy bills will skyrocket as this group tries to understand management and business economics all at a time of worldwide problems. This is the group Australians have endorsed for the years ahead. Tighten your seatbelts, as we are in for a very bumpy, contentious and expensive ride, says Bill from Mittagong. (laughs) Old man yelling at clouds. Well, Bill, you have an opportunity if you like to POQ overseas. Anyway, uh, Michael from DY in Sydney wrote over the weekend, the Teals were elected to close down coal power stations. That policy got irrelevant very quickly. The Teals weren't elected to close down coal power stations. Anyways, Matt Canavan, well, (laughs) Matt Canavan points out in, apparently wrote an article in Friday's Telegraph, we need to increase coal power now or the lights will go out. Even Matt Keane, the green liberal, agrees, says Michael in DY. Ah, all right, uh, more on coal too. This one from a John who's from Balgala Heights. It's a stain on our very existence that we have an energy crisis and that our major source, coal, was demonised to cause the current state of disrepair of power supply that we now find ourselves in. We've embarked on a save the world from emissions campaign, but cannot save ourselves from outages, ferocious price rises and lack of baseload power. 
I hold the Greens primarily responsible with their total refusal to budge on coal or nuclear, and we have ironically rewarded this insanity with giving them more power in Parliament to further our current misery. How utterly bizarre. All right, John, well, um, righto, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Uh, what has the form, what did the former government in its nearly decade? in office do to set up alternative modes of power generation. Not much, John. Anyway, this one's come through as well. Um, Who's this from? Another John. This John is from the ACT. Do you see a theme here? New South Wales Energy Minister Mac Keane and Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen have just received a taste of reality. Seems renewables can't deliver a stable, low-cost and continuous supply of electricity after all. Well, who'd have thought? And we're only just into winter. The worst is yet to come. The message now from these previously climate management zealots is to crank up the coal and somehow find the gas supplies they've previously demonised. All of this could have been foreseen by simply observing the situation in Europe, which has done an about-turn back to coal and nuclear after wasting billions on trying to get renewables to perform an impossible task. Yep, the science is perfectly clear, says John of the ACT. Okay, well, there's a theme there, and I mean, I was expecting all of that to (laughs) come to fruition. Um, You know, they forget that, I guess, their masters that they've supported in, you know, Dutton and his mob over the past decade, did absolutely nothing in relation to setting us up for the future. All right, and just on this one, uh, can I assume that all those who wish Australia to become a republic will turn up for work on Monday, (laughs) the Queen's birthday? That was Cliff, who's from New South Wales. Uh, Well, I suppose you've just got to follow the law, whatever it may be at the time, Uh, Cliff. Uh, This one from Frank in Terrigal. Regarding our new Prime Minister, what will he do next after what he has done so far? (laughs) The New Zealand PM has a whinge. Oh, I'll fix that. To Indonesia, I'll be your bestie. The Pacific Islands, I will stop rising sea levels and any refugees that come through the back door are not legally your welcome. That's a cranky Frank from Terrigal. Uh, I'll leave it there, but you can kind of... uh, get the feeling that, you know, there's still a lot of whinging going on from those on the right or conservatives and, you know, finding it very difficult. And everything that continues, uh, all the problems that we'll have, uh, will all be the new government's fault. And they'll forget about the inaction and the ineptitude of the last decade. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, Let's talk a little tax. Now, one of the worst taxes, I think, uh, is payroll tax. Why on earth would a government think that it was right and proper uh, to tax businesses to employ people? That's That's the first thing. Also, stamp duty. I mean, it's just money for jam. 
really for governments, in particular state governments. Stamp duty on cars, stamp duty on your rego, stamp duty on this, stamp duty on that. And in particular, it has been a barrier for younger people to obtain property. You know, first home buyers and the like, because not only are they paying ridiculously over the odds prices for, I think anyway, for, for property in Sydney, but they're also paying a ridiculous amount of tax in stamp duty. It's it's money for jam. The government doesn't have, doesn't have to do anything for it. Anyway, I was happy to see this yesterday. The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has signalled his ambition to abolish stamp duty, calling it, quote, the worst tax that any state can have. Well, well done, Dominic. I agree with you. He's called it a barrier to first-time buyers entering the market. Now, the proposed reform would give home buyers in New South Wales the choice to pay stamp duty or an annual property tax based on land value and usage. Uh, well, hang on. Isn't that just a tax by another name? <laughs> Once a property is moved to the new system, it would remain subject to the yearly land tax phasing out stamp duty over time. Look, so in other words, what they're saying essentially is rather than paying it all up front, you will pay it off over time. Our government is focused on one thing, and that's helping people get into the housing market, Dominic Perrottet told media in regional New South Wales yesterday. He said, and I quote, I believe stamp duty is the worst tax that any government can have. It's a massive impediment for people getting into the housing market. The Premier stressed the policy had not been formally announced and his government could not make changes to the one-off tax without approval from the federal government. He said the state and federal governments should seize the opportunity for reform in response to the pandemic and the economic challenges posed by inflation. Uh, he said yesterday, for way too long in this country, we've not had the reforms that we had under the Keating era and the Howard era, said Mr Perrottet, who campaigned to scrap stamp duty when he was the New South Wales Treasurer. Well, I kind of agree with him. I mean, but let's be very clear here. It's not scrapping stamp duty. You're still going to pay it, but you'll pay a tax or a levy over time rather than all up front. Now, what would you prefer? I'd love to hear from you. I'll put a post up on this story on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back, Marcus. Paul in the morning. Now, I'm no Rebel Wilson fan. I mean, she's great. She, uh, you know, she's had a, a really good career. She's very popular and funny and all the rest of it. She's, she's just not my cup of tea, um, her style of, of comedy and, you know, the movie she's in. But that's, you know, notwithstanding, she's obviously done extremely well and good on her. And, you know, what she does in her private life has absolutely nothing to do with me. And I was amused over the weekend to see this story. Of course, now Miss Wilson has apparently come out saying that she's in a, a gay relationship uh, and she was pictured in an Instagram post with her lovely partner. And they both look extremely happy. Love wins. You know, uh, love conquers all and that's all that should matter. But apparently, an opinion piece published 
on Saturday in the Sydney Morning Herald by a so-called gossip columnist by the name of... What's his name? Is it Andrew Hornery? Anyway, he complained that Miss Wilson apparently only came out, that is, revealed that she's in a, a gay relationship, after he approached her for comment. Mr Hornery whinged. In a perfect world, outing same-sex celebrity relationships should be a redundant concept in 2022. Love is love, right? With a question mark, Mr Hornery wrote. And then, from what I understand, he had a a bit of a a whinge that he was gazumped, if you like. So in other words, we've got here a journalist whining that someone spoke about their very private life before he could. (laughs) You know? before he could write whatever he thought was appropriate in uh, in the newspaper. You know, uh, I just find it odd. I really do. And thank you for everyone that's, I guess, agreed with uh, my comments on that, um, on the Facebook page. I put it up on the weekend because I knew I'd get a response. Um, Kerry's right. What is this obsession with the sexual preferences of people? Well, yeah, but I suppose... You know, if uh, if so-called celebrities and uh, famous movie stars do come out as being gay, it makes news. But in my opinion, they should be the ones who are actually uh, providing that information to their fans and to the world themselves. You know, it shouldn't be some sort of gotcha moment or something or other, um, or some sort of exclusive that a, uh, you know, celebrity gossip columnist needs to break. Anyway, uh, I think that, um, yeah, oh, this one from Renee. G'day, Marcus. Aha, he was gazumped by his intended female victim. Now, the poor sod is whining about it. Calm as a bitch, especially when it's almost instantaneous. <laughs> a gossip columnist says Jerome, blaming the person he outed. Anyway, so um, I don't know. Good on Rebel Wilson for coming out, if that's what she felt she needed to do. And look, maybe uh, if this bloke hadn't approached her, this hornery hadn't approached her uh, for a comment, she may not have effectively come out. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to lose any sleep whether she did or not, are you? And good on her for doing it on her terms. And who cares if the so-called journo held off on the story and didn't get an exclusive? Marcus Paul in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. I'm having a little cackle to myself because I'm just quietly loving the implosion and the bitching and the fighting that's going on in the New South Wales Liberal uh, National Party government. In particular, the Liberals. They're at each other. The New South Wales Transport Minister, David Elliott, has accused his Liberal colleague, Matt Keane, of (gasps) treachery uh, during the federal election. After the Treasurer was accused of telling a journalist to grill Scott Morrison over the controversial pre-selection of the anti-trans activist Catherine Deves. Elliott, yesterday said he was disgusted with Keane over a report in The Australian that suggested the Treasurer had asked a journalist to push both Morrison and the New South Wales Roads Minister Natalie Ward on comments made by Deves 
in the lead-up to the May poll. The Transport Minister, former Police Minister David Elliott and former regular on my program said Matt Keane's behaviour is nothing short of treachery and will be repaid in kind. Is that a a veiled threat, Minister? Elliot, who has criticised other members of his own government in the past, said it was the sort of thing I've come to expect from a certain former Liberal PM. And that's an apparent reference to former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. So what's he saying? Matt Keane is the Malcolm Turnbull equivalent in the New South Wales government. Is that what you're saying, David? The report in The Australian also said that a source close to Morrison had raised the issue with Keane, who strongly denied the allegation and claimed he was doing everything in his power to help Morrison's re-election. <laughs> That's what it's all about, really. Hurt feelings over the fact, of course, that the uh, Liberal and National Party at a federal level were kicked out on the curb. Now, we know Matt Keane has been a vocal critic of the decision to pre-select Deves. And he's not the only one. And I don't blame him for being a vocal critic of that. I support Matt Keane in his stance on Catherine Deves. I mean, she's a, she's a bit of a bigot. Anyway, according to the report, he had sent messages to a press gallery journalist travelling with Mr Morrison during the campaign on the night after the Warringah candidate backtracked on an apology for comments stating trans children were being, quote, surgically mutilated. The messages, which The Guardian understands, were sent after the conclusion of the press conference, reportedly show Keane suggesting the reporter ask Ward about the furor. You should pap her, Keane reportedly wrote, referring to paparazzi-style photographs. Now, yesterday, Matt Keane described the messages as, quote, light-hearted banter, and said that Elliot had not contacted him about the story. <laughs> no. Well, maybe he should have... David, before you, uh, you know, you went on 2GB yesterday. Anyway, I didn't ask other reporters to ask anything of anyone. He said, David Elliott's got my phone number. I haven't spoken to him about that. I'd love to be a fly on the wall at the next meeting. Uh, You know, the Liberal Party MPs in Sydney. It's State Parliament there on Macquarie Street. Anyway, Keane had publicly rebuked the party over its decision to pre-select Deves, whose candidacy became a major touchpoint during the campaign over a series of comments she'd made on social media. Of course, we know that Deves spent much of the campaign dodging the media, but after initially apologising for some of the comments, she appeared to walk back on those apologies later on in the campaign, probably when she knew she didn't have a chance in hell. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, that's it for today's program. Um, it's a short week, uh, but that's okay. That means we uh, will be quicker with everything. We will come back tomorrow between 7 and 9 around Australia here on iHeartRadio, on TuneIn, and, of course, starterfm.com.au. If you're listening to us on the Prawncast, the podcast, please give it a share on your social media so we can get more and more people around Australia downloading it as well. Enjoy the rest of today. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well,